Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. On this week's show, we have the political literary equivalent of a Reese's peanut butter cup, which is to say two great tastes that taste great together. So great, in fact, that we're taking this delicious, delectable twofer and giving you two heaping helpings of it. That's right. Another special two-part Hell in High Water, which given the identity of our guest today, means you are getting something truly unusual, not just a double header, not just double trouble, but that rarest of rarities, almost never spotted in the wild, the fabled double duper. The chocolate coating on today's confection is Mark Leibovich, one of this great nation's greatest profile writers, literary stylists, puncturers of the pomposity and illustrators of the preposterousness of Washington, D.C., who, after 10 years gracing the pages of the Washington Post and 15 at the New York Times, during which he produced the iconic, best-selling comedy of manners about our nation's capital, this town, Mark has now taken up residence at the Atlantic and produced a new best-selling book about the culture of D.C. It's called Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Now, this one is less a comedy of manners than a searing, nausea-inducing, neo-Gothic portrait of the swamp that Donald Trump pledged to drain, but instead filled to the brim with toxic sludge transforming it into something even less appealing than the Okefenokee itself, an irradiated sewer filled with cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers from Matt Gates to Matt Schlapp, Paul Gosar to Lindsey Graham, who enabled Donald Trump's rise, his rule, and in the end, his quest to destroy American democracy, and who are still doing it right now. How did that happen? And what does it portend? Listen to Lebo. First of all, it's just weakness. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have to be Kevin McCarthy. Lindsey Graham doesn't have to be Lindsey Graham. You know, they could do something. They absolutely could do something. I've said this before. I mean, so much more chilling than what happened on January 6th is what's happened since then. That is so chilling. And, and think about what we have in front of us. It's not just that, like, he had a bad day on January 6th. It's just... It's all of 2024 that is in front of us. Put simply, thank you for your servitude, tells the story of the Trump era, not by focusing on Trump himself, but on, as Leibovich puts it, quote, the accomplices who make Trump possible. Which brings us to the peanut butter at the core of our double-stuffed bonbon, Tim Miller, who in the years prior to the Trump era was one of the freshest, most digitally fluent, and fastest rising stars in the firmament of Republican political operatives, working for John McCain in 2008, for John Huntsman and the Republican National Committee in 2012, and for Jeb Bush in 2016. But after low-energy Jeb's merciless drubbing at the tiny, sausage-fingered hands of the eventual GOP nominee, Miller became one of the earliest conscripts in the Never Trump movement. As spokesman for our Principles PAC in 2016, co-founder of Republican Voters Against Trump in 2020, a writer for the anti-Trump conservative website The Bulwark, and now author of another best-selling book. Alongside Leibovich's, this one, Tim Miller's, is called Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. And in that book, Tim Miller examines the role of People like him, Republican staffers, consultants, spinmeisters, hatchet men, and the like, in first doing next to nothing to prevent Trump's rise to power and then clambering aboard the Trump train with no hesitation and precious little moral compunction. Quote, why in the fuck did the vast, vast, vast majority of seemingly normal, decent people whom I worked with go along with the most abnormal, indecent of men? Miller asks, revealing along the way that even he, even he... Mr. Never Trump Miller 
briefly stepped over to the dark side, helping Donald Trump's noxious EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, get confirmed and offering an explanation that would ring familiar to Hannah, banality of evil, Arendt. There are a lot of mid-level people in Washington for whom inertia was the answer. They were Republicans. They went to Republican bars. They had Republican careers. They had college funds to pay for that were paid for by Republican campaigns. Maybe some of their kids were named Reagan. You know, they named their dog Jack Kemp. Like, you know, like you're in this culture. And so for a lot of them, when I asked them to explain it, it was similar to that justification I gave for working for Scott Pruitt, which was, what the fuck else am I supposed to do? I'm just going to do this. In each of their books, in other words, Miller and Leibovich are telling essentially the same story, just from different sides of the looking glass. The story of Republican corruption, complicity, and cowardice in the face of a wannabe fascist at the top of their party's ranks. It's a story that has been told before, but rarely told as well, which is why we are giving it the two-part treatment, with the first installment dropping today and the second tomorrow. It's a story with echoes in the headlines from last week that Mark and Tim and I discuss about Mike Pence's continued refusal to forcefully criticize the former guy who would happily have seen him hung, that former guy's continued coddling of the Saudis and conspiracy feeding over 9-11, and Attorney General Merrick Garland's posture towards prosecuting Trump over his actions on January 6th. And it's a story that we all desperately need to understand as well as we can as we find ourselves hurtling towards 2024 and a horizon absolutely, positively shrouded in hell and high water. Christina Keene will tell you from BFW, they, she sat in an office with Mitch McConnell and a war veteran from Kentucky, and he looked that man in the eyes and he said, we'll get it done. And he lied to him. Because Mitch McConnell yesterday flipped. I'm used to the lies. I'm used to the hypocrisy. Senator Pat Toomey won't take a meeting with the veterans groups. Sends out his chief of staff. I'm used to the cowardice. I've been here a long time. Senate's where accountability goes to die. These people don't care. They're never losing their jobs. They're never losing their health care. I'm used to all of it but I am not used to the cruelty. This is an embarrassment to the Senate, to the country, to the founders. And if this is America first, then America is fucked. And there you go. (laughs) Subtle. Um, Look, I mean, that was a 10 minute rant of Jon Stewart's, my friends, Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller, who are both here to talk about mostly almost the entire episode of Republican stuff. They're authors of these two new books. Thank you for your servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. That's Mark Leibovich's book. And Why We Did It, A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. That's Tim Miller's book. You guys will discover how similar these books are as we go forward. Both of them, gentlemen, before I allow you to speak, I'll say another incredible thing. Both debuted on the New York Times, bestseller list at number two, which is like peas in a pod. Good to see both of you guys. It's our co-branding strategy. You know, we just, we do, we, we're just really, you have to really work to see how we're so perfectly commingled here. I'm just honored to be here with Mark. And usually in this sort of situation, we would have like a fake fight, you know, to help promote <laughs> the books, but it was just yeah. impossible. My admiration was too deep for him to even do any cafebi. Oh God. Yeah. It's, it's Same. Be- Although we are teaming up, I mean, via Twitter occasionally, I mean, people like Alex Jones, yeah. uh, Alan Dershowitz have <laughs> yeah. books out concurrently yeah. and we can sort of, 
you know, raise the alarm via Twitter to say, please help. This is personal for both of us. We cannot we lose. We a little Amazon link. We can't lose. It's perfect. I love it. And as we, we will discuss later, these two books are really, both books basically, really about Trump enablers and the kind of political cultural angle on, you know, Trump's takeover of the GOP, his corruption of the GOP, how that happened and why it happened and what it means for the future. And they're basically the same story through different sides of the same looking glass. But I want to come back to Stuart right now and ask you guys this question. That clip was played everywhere, 10 minutes long. It got millions of views, even like the full 10 minutes. People just watched that thing, right? And it reminded me a little bit of the Matthew McConaughey thing when he went to the White House and gave that speech about gun control. Like these are the people who break through now where people like hear these voices from not from the political ecosystem at all. What do you guys make of that? Mark, you can start just on purely on the basis of alphabetical preference. What do you make Seniority. of that? Make, what do you make of that fact and of his actual substantive critique of Republicans in the Senate on their they're letting this they're killing this health care bill designed to help veterans who are exposed to some of the worst toxins that you can face in war? Yeah, I mean, John Stewart has always obviously been a very effective communicator. He also picks his spots pretty, I think, astutely because he he is defending veterans. And what what is the I, I can't place it burn? What kind of burn thing are we burn talking pit. about here? Burn pit. Burn yes. Pits, I mean, yes. it's a very specific and very visceral feeling of the condition that we're talking about here. And also, it is substantive, right? He's talking about an issue that is obviously deeply personal to, to those who have been victimized by this. But also, he talks about air conditioning. He talks about Pat Toomey's health care. He talks about the fact that his transfer of power will not be from representing Pennsylvania in the U.S. Senate to, you know, whatever he decides to do in his private life, he'll probably go to K Street, he'll probably go to Harrisburg, he'll probably go to Philly, he'll probably do something. He said this in in the context of Pat Toomey being part of a culture that is extremely alien to what apparently these constituents are suffering from. So, look, I think John Stewart can be extremely effective. I think he's kind of a niche player at this point, but I think a very effective one. Well, he's done it for 15 years, Tim. That's the other thing is he's actually done the work. He makes that point. He's like, I've been here a lot, like for a long time doing this work. So he has some credibility, but also there's just this other element. Hearing him say a thing in the middle of this where he said something like, you know, talking about the hypocrisy of these people, which is, you know, they've never met a war they wouldn't support and they've never met a veteran they wouldn't screw over. In fact, I think that just resonates with a lot of people who basically think that's pretty much right. Yeah. Well, it ties to this other, you know, kind of like Trump preyed on this in a selfish, nihilistic way, but but it's tied to the same failing of Washington, right? Which is that all of this nonsense, right? Like the reason the burn pit bill didn't pass is because the Republicans are butthurt that Joe Manchin ran circles around Mitch McConnell for once in the Democrats' life. They ran circles around Mitch McConnell. That's what this is about. It's about all this parliamentary, insider, congressional bullshit, right? And so why Stewart is effective is because he's not punching back with other political gamesmanship bullshit. It's about, okay, no, this bill actually affects real people. And like, that's the whole point of what we're doing here. You know, public servants are supposed to help real people. And there's this disconnect in Washington, particularly on the Republican side, where these guys are so caught up and owning the libs and winning the news cycle and winning the hour that it leave, left an opening, I think, for Stewart to make such a strong message. And, and, and I, I loved in particular the fact that he was carrying it on Newsmax and Fox. I think a lot of times liberals and Democrats pick their battles poorly on Fox and Newsmax and like go over in areas where they can wag their finger and they they may come off as condescending or whatever in a way that doesn't land. This lands because it's like, I care about veterans. We want to help them. They're actually being hurt. And these guys are doing fuck all about it. Like that works. 
Yeah. And I think people are just so over Washington and the, it just all is white noise that comes out of there now. It's like, right. it's just, and so when you hear that, I mean, it's amazing that these guys, you know, like McConaughey or Jon Stewart, who are celebrities and, and you would think they live in their own bubble, but, and they do live in their own bubble. Yet, like somehow the genuineness, you could hear Stewart's actually like emotional about this, just like you could with McConaughey on the Uvalde right. thing from the White House, where like the emotion cuts through for people and they're like, they hear that tremor in the voice that sounds real in a way that almost nothing else emanating from Washington ever does from any from either party under any circumstance. You didn't think Ted Cruz's rant about the discretionary versus mandatory spending sounded real? You didn't you didn't hear a quiver in Ted and Raphael's voice? When he said <laughs> no. That? Well, these all pl- they're plotting. There's always a quiver. Donald Trump's name only barely came up in that answer. Maybe the only answer that we're not going to have that's not full frontal on Donald Trump. <laughs> Here's Merrick Garland asked again by Lester Holt about you know, the question that one six committee hearings are basically over the question they'll all focus now on the Justice Department. We had reporting last week that was they're actually going to go after Trump, according to Carol Lennig and, and her colleagues, the Washington Post and others who match that, that the investigation is picking up speed with a focus specifically on Trump. And in the middle of that, Merrick Garland goes on NBC News with Lester Holt and does this interview in which he says the following. We pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone anyone who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. Mark, that's been like the Garland line since January 6th, when he has basically been saying that same thing. And in all cases, people who are hopeful that the Justice Department will have the courage to indict Donald Trump hear in that a coded message, which is we're going after Donald Trump and others who hear who think that Garland is dragging his feet and doesn't want this fight, hear that as a way of sidestepping the issue. What, what do you think Democrats now in, the, in this town, that town where you live, are Democrats now more heartened by what they're hearing or is there still a lot of skepticism that he's going to do anything? Well, I I mean, I think what Garland said is basically boilerplate. I mean, that's what an attorney general should say in this situation. And it'd be obviously shocking if he got any more, if he drilled down any closer about, you know, what the Justice Department was doing and what it had planned. But I guess the question is, Merrick Garland is a prosecutor, is extremely meticulous, and he's actually a judge, but his prosecutorial style through his life has been very meticulous. The question is, does he have a clock? Because... It took him years to prosecute the Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, that was sort of what he staked his reputation right. on back when, when, you know, he really made his mark in the 90s. And I guess sort of the question is, has the Justice Department been doing a lot of very quiet work concurrently with what the January 6th committee has been doing? And they're just sort of rolling it out a little bit now, or are they playing catch up to try to maybe buy some time from people who are watching them impatiently about doing this? But... I don't know. I, I have to think that Merrick Garland is not going to telegraph anything substantively. But, you know, if they have anything, you, you got to think that if there's a Republican House, a Republican Senate, certainly a Republican White House, it, it's going to be a really rough case to sort of try if, if they wait too long. Tim, it's like everything Mark just said is obviously right. I mean, but when he keeps saying, obviously. when he keeps saying everything, everyone and anyone, you know, that there's, again, it's kind of like 
trying to calm the horses out there and say, we are not afraid. And if there's, and for people for whom it's obvious, especially now after the one six committee hearings, that there's at least one and potentially two, or maybe even three federal statutes that Donald Trump violated. They're like, okay, well, that's about, that's as clear as he's going to be for the reasons Mark just said. My question for you is Trump is like, we, we've seen after these one six committee hearings, you're now seeing these people coming out and doing these focus groups with Trump voters saying he's been damaged with them. You know, they're, they're like ready to give him the gold watch. They they still like him. But they see that he's got baggage. They see that he's talking about the past. Let's move on to somebody new. If the DOJ indicts Trump, is that not a political boon to Donald Trump? It like would be the best thing in the world that could happen to him on the political front, right? Wouldn't that just rally everyone in the Republican mm. base to Trump if he was seen as being targeted by a Democratic partisan attorney general in their view? I just think that we're not as good at predicting what's going to happen as we all think we are and that Merrick Garland shouldn't make his decision based on what he thinks the political outcome of his decision is going to be. I, maybe you're right. Maybe that'll happen. To, to, be, to, may, be clear, maybe, to be clear, I didn't suggest he should make his decision on that yeah, basis. No, no, I'm I, just I, asking I know, what I you, where you think that's where it would go. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying I, maybe, right? Like maybe the base would rally to Trump. Or maybe this whole element that has led, you know, like the Sarah Longwell focus groups of the bulk, like you're referencing, and others, uh, people to start to want to give him the gold watch. Maybe at the fact that if the feds are knocking down his door at, at Bedminster, uh, maybe that would incentivize him even more to say, you know what, uh, well, this guy can't win. It's too much baggage, too much bullshit. Let's move on to Ron DeSantis, right? Maybe if the attorney general does nothing and Ron DeSantis decides that he's scared of Donald Trump and doesn't want to put on his big boy pants and only, you know, Mike Pence and the great Liz Cheney decide to challenge Donald Trump. Like, all of a sudden, everybody goes right back into Donald Trump's arms. And we've been here before, but this isn't the first time, by the way, in Republican focus groups where people started to be like, eh, I'm getting a little tired of the bullshit. You know, like, that happened for a week or two after Charlottesville. It happened for, you know, we've lived through, this is Groundhog Day. So I'm a keep my boot on his throat kind of guy, is my view, I and mean, he should be jailed, he should be prosecuted anyway, and I don't think we should be concerned about the political ramifications. I think what you laid out is a possible downside risk of it. But I just I don't think we are, should be certain that that's what would happen. Yeah, I think I just want to be clear. I'm I'm on the record. I think the man's obviously broken the law. At oh, least yeah, there's yeah. a strong enough case. No there's question. a strong enough case to indict the guy, and he should be indicted. Right. I'm more just like interested in what some of the, the perverse political effects, the unintended consequences, could be that just people should get their heads ready for. That like when Lester Holt asked him, uh, asked Garland, "Well, are you you know there's going to be a civil war in this country if you do this?" And I'm like, right. dude, there's already a civil war in this country. Like there's not it's not going to get any worse, but it but it, not not literally a civil war, but it it will yeah. inflame divisions. Mark, you, I saw you roll your eyes. The, the country's pretty divided already, is my point. Not, oh, not a literal civil war, but like, yes, no. it would be provocative if Garland did this. <laughs> there would be people with their hair on fire. But truly, people's yeah. hair is pretty much on fire already. They already they think the one six committee hearings were, you know, a persecution yeah. of Donald Trump. So my attitude is if he broke the law, prosecute him. And I think he broke yeah, the law. I, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I, I think that that's 100 percent justified here. And look, I, it always bugs me a lot to hear the caveat, and you know, I, I don't disagree with you, but the idea that like, oh, people are, they still like him, but they're exhausted. I mean, how can, I mean, I think it is such an indictment that the they still like him, but caveat always has to accompany this because you just never hear any defenses of this guy. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways that 
Democrats. You haven't been watching enough Newsmax, Mark. You hear, you hear some defenses of them r- over, right. on, over on exactly. the Max. <laughs> I need to get over to the Max. But no, I mean, it's, it is sort of striking that they're not playing a defense game. They're not playing a, you know, we'll look at this game. It's just, there's nothing. He's got nothing. So I actually think it would be fun. And I'm actually kind of surprised that like Liz Cheney or Benny Thompson or someone hasn't just sort of sat up there and said, can you guys just come up here and raise your right hand and come under oath? I mean, just do it. Are you scared? Why are you so scared of going under oath? Because you know they wouldn't go under oath. Just like, you know, man up here. To whom? And to, to, to Trump to Trump himself? Or do you mean to, to, to Trump what? himself, to Mark Meadows, to whoever, right? And, and especially since, like, Republicans are on this weird masculinity kick now, it's like, you know, man up. <laughs> I mean, it's just surprising to me that that is not being used as a taunting weapon more so. It's good that, Tim, that you left the party when you did, because with all of the gay bashing that you enabled when you were in the party <laughs> that ran a little contrary to your interest, the book, again, your your book, which we'll talk more about, you know, a lot of things in it were surprising to me. A number of things surprised me. One of them was just how much homophobia you managed to enable yourself. Tim is wearing a pearl necklace currently and, and <laughs> is, a, is a very is very much a, a proud out gay man for anybody who doesn't know. I mean, the book has a lot of I'm amazed at how many of those people you helped out the homophobes yeah i don't know where we go i don't know I, I've, well, is this question is this i mentioned question about it, josh hawley's masculinity initiative or is it about me helping out the homophobes I'm, well I'm, where, i, I where mentioned we on the line here mark, mark mark just said that the gop was on a masculinity kick and i'm just saying it's good that you are now living a pure life because if you were still back in your old life you yeah. would be helping them run the masculinity kick which is basically a way of bashing i don't your, know they could probably people. use a few, they could probably use a few who have some integrity to to help with the masculinity <laughs> kick you know yeah. i think we know a little bit more about masculinity than flabby breasted Ted Cruz. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I I think that obviously we went through a little bit of a phase where that was not in vogue anymore, even on the right, right? I mean, I think that there's this feeling that the right had kind of lost this battle. And that is part of what I write about in the book, right? Like, it's sort of easy to rationalize, like, oh, I'm going to work for kind of like a soft homophobe. <laughs> because it doesn't make me feel good, by the way. I'm just being honest. Like, you just have to be honest. With soft it's, like, it's easy to rationalize. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just, you know, I'm consulted. My guy's kind of a soft homophobe. And it's like, we're winning anyway. I love right? that. Like, we're already on the path to, we're already on the path to success. I know I'm going to end up being right. Like, the moral arc of history on this is about to land in my favor. And so, you know, the guy that I'm working for is good on these other things and so this is how you rationalize it but obviously that's like not the case now right now we're kind of into a backsliding moment i think it's interesting actually how many of the quote-unquote good slash normal Republicans who decide to stay, since Ron DeSantis in particular is the great savior, their great savior of protecting them from being in Mark Leibovich's next book um, Mm. uh, and serving Trump, that they have nothing to say about DeSantis's blatantly homophobic, like the most homophobic piece of legislation that's been put out there since the gay marriage amendment probably is this this schools bill in Florida. And you even see the, the kind of the people who are close to him, who are like one step over from me and never Trumpistan, you know, so desperate to defend and run cover for DeSantis that they won't even say anything bad about a bill like banning my kid from being able to do a homework assignment about her dad's. That's concerning. Yeah. <laughs> Concer- concerning would be one word for it. I mean, the thing about manly men, we had two of them, it's two of them, long the, list, two of them in the party appeared in Washington, D.C. this week, in the same week, last week, I should say, one of them, uh, Donald J. Trump. Um, the man list of all men, of course, uh, and and his supporting man, who now is going to be apparently going to challenge him, Mike uh, Michael Pence. Pence did a thing, a, a speech at the Young America Foundation National Conservative Student Conference last week, 
And, you know, he did his usual Mike Pence thing. But at some point he was asked by someone about the civil war going on in the Republican Party that led him to try to actually sort of say right now, today, sitting here uh, in July of 2022, where he and Donald Trump diverge. This is the gem that he coughed up. I don't know that our movement is that divided. I don't, I don't know that the president and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. I, I truly do believe that elections are about the future. And that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. Maybe he's not aware of the fact that there's like, you know, tens of millions of Republicans who are still basically spending all their time like his former boss, looking, doing nothing but looking back. Also, Mark, he's talking about a guy who wanted, who is, I would say, somewhere between was perfectly happy or actively sure. wanted to see him strung up with a noose around his neck a year and a half ago. What mm. the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> it, it is the question. I mean, Pence is like the poster child for the submissive community. Uh, to use a term that I read in the in the bull. No kink right? shaming. No kink shaming no, on this I'm podcast. Not, no, 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 no. This is not. No, I'm just. I'm telling you. I mean, he made his mark as someone who praised the quote-unquote broad-shouldered leadership of Donald Love Trump. What seven times? Seventeen times in like the course of two paragraphs. I mean, he really wrote the book. He had the bowed head. He had the the quivering voice. I mean, the whole thing, right? And. You know, he would always lead off those cabinet meetings by being the first to praise him as his right as vice president of the United States, as the broad-shouldered president of the United States. Pence is, is like the ultimate. And there's actually, uh, kind of, it's, it's in my, I'm not going to like turn around and like page through my book, but there is a line in here about a supporter of his, or someone who liked Pence, forgot where he was, I think it might have been Missouri or something, but because he liked the idea that he played sort of a subservient role to the to the alpha right the alpha yeah. president and like you know he's like a, a submissive wife yes. he is like someone who allows the husband to get the glory i mean i don't know if he actually used the word husband or but look i mean there, there's mother. a lot going on he was the okay. mother he's yeah. the, the mother yeah. to Trump. He, well, well yeah i mean there's just a lot going on here. and the what technically karen pence's <laughs> mother but yes. there's a lot going on here and i don't um <laughs> I don't really know what to make of it, except that it's still very much an urgent sort of almost Freudian issue inside the GOP. Heilman, though, can I just... Can I ask one question just for clarification? Tim, you'll know the answer to this. Is it, would it be fair to say that, to characterize the Trump-Pence relationship as Trump is the dominatrix and Pence is the bitch? <laughs> Is that fair? Why will I know? I will know this. Um, okay. I mean, well, you know, you just, just you you're, just, you're just cautioning uh, Mark about kink shaming. So I assume yeah, that 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 just gays who who participate who in, dom, in, in dom, and dom, didn't say anything. Uh, I didn't say I didn't say that subculture. Uh, I just but, said you yeah. seem to have some insight into kink. That's all I'm trying to say. You expressed <laughs> I, it just I think, now. Yeah, I think dom and sub would be the appropriate terms of art here. Good. You said okay. bitch. I, I think that's more of a slang term. Here, here's um, well, I also called Trump. It is talking is about. Um, Mike also, Pence's masculinity. I also call Trump a dominatrix. So you know what I mean. Like, look, I'm I'm I'm, I'm running I'm running hot here today. <laughs> you are. The other thing that it gives me really bad flashbacks to, especially I'm right here with John Heilman, since we spent so much time together in 2015 and 16, mm. is like this is the same shit all over again. Where Donald Trump, like, there's a two way battle. Donald Trump, you know, wants Mike Pence to die. 
And Donald Trump is talking about how big of a pussy he is on the campaign stump. And then Mike Pence, when he has asked about Trump, it's like, well, you know, his focus might be a little off. You know, really <laughs> love the guy. Great guy. Sometimes his focus, not right there. He had a bad couple hours on the 6th. But before that, on the 5th, on the 5th, he was killing it. You know, he was, he was doing great broad-shouldered presidenting. And so this, <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, this is not a way to win, you know? I mean, you thought we would have learned this in 2016, where it's like the whole, like, Donald Trump is the best, greatest person in the world, except for this one little thing that I don't love, is not how you beat a dude who's, like, bitch-slapping you across the face. Right. Well, and, and, you know, the thing it reminds me of of that era most strikingly is Trump trashing Heidi Cruz. Like, basically, like, saying, saying, she's ugly. Your wife is ugly. Look at these pictures. She's hideous. And then, and there's Ted Cruz back, you know, a little while later, just as supplicant as can be. Uh, or Carson, yo. the same yeah. thing. He's right. talking about how Carson, Carson was maybe insane right. and should have gone into right. a psychiatric ward. And, right. yeah. yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. All right, we're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be right back with more Mark Levovich and Tim Miller here on Hell and I Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. And guys, I want to play one more clip from last week, one more little piece of sound, because we were just talking about Mike Pence and Donald Trump. And, you know, what do you know? Donald Trump in the news himself last week. Shock, horror, amazement. When does Donald Trump ever get in the news? <laughs> uh, he gave a speech last week, kind of a dueling speech to Mike Pence's speech that was really kind of weird. No one really paid attention. But then off he goes to Bedminster the next day for this uh, this golf tournament that he's hosting there, the LIV golf tournament, which is backed by the Saudis. And a bunch of protesters show up who are like, what the fuck, man? The Saudis like are behind 9-11. They start disrupting play. They disrupted Phil Mickelson to the point where he had the like, drive that he had to like, you know, pull the club back and like start over. Trump is asked about, about it all by a local reporter. And this video uh, clip got a little viral. So let's, let's listen to that. We can talk about Donald Trump and his view about the Saudis. I've known these people for a long time in Saudi Arabia, and they've been friends of mine for a long time. Uh, They've invested in many American companies. They own big percentages of many, many American companies. And uh, frankly, what they're doing for golf is so great. What they're doing for the players is so great. The salaries are going to go way up. You're so closely associated with the city of New York. You, of all people, understand the passion surrounding 9-11. What do you say to those family members who protested earlier this week and will be doing so again on Friday? Well, nobody's gotten to the bottom of 9-11, unfortunately, and they should have, as to the maniacs that did that horrible thing to our city, to our country, to the world. So nobody's really been there. Nobody's really gotten to the bottom of 9-11. Mark, is there, I'm like, what's there still to get to the bottom of there? Just out of curiosity. Uh, not, not sure. I mean, I, except, you know, the, the height of the building, right? He, wasn't that his first reaction? Yeah. To it? I mean, yeah. here, it, it's the guy just never fails to get it 100% wrong. Yeah. I mean, sorry, sources say. I mean, it's just really, it's just stunning, though. I mean, you know, okay, why not be a 9-11 truther? Sure, throw that on Throw that on there. I'll stick with you. I ask you this one question, which is just between you and me. Tim, I don't think we'll care about this because that's to do with sport ball. But don't like, tell anything. Like, I like why? sports. What you talking That's your second soft homophobia right there, Mark. Or, uh, uh, hey, John. Well, John, excuse well, me. Well, that's on the, second on, soft homophobia, John. So it's not just you know, me who on, has to go your through Your soft homophobe rating is going to go First up. of all, no, that, well, all that means is that it's likely I'm going to get a business solicitation from Tim fairly soon. He's going to want to try to work for me because I'm a soft, apparently a soft homophobe. But what the fuck is Charles? Barkley doing out there? 
at that tournament. Yeah, everyone seems to be flirting with this. Uh, was Liv? What are, what are those three letters? Liv. Liv. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just like you know, they don't really. I, I think you know, bunch of money floating out there. It's like, whoa, this looks really easy. And then someone gets to them and say, you know, Saudi's bad. And you know, it, you realize maybe they take a bigger PR hit than than the windfall from like getting a so getting in bed with with Liv. Tim, here's my question about this, though, right? So this got traction. People shot around on Twitter. It got on cable news, blah, blah, blah. All right. You think about all the crazy shit Trump has said, things that you guys discuss in some detail in both of your books, the various things that were, and we'll talk about one of them in detail in a second, but like, I think, you know, this is the kind of thing that if you said that and you were any normal person in either party, it would be like the end of your political career. At least it, that was the case in the pre-Trump era. And now... I don't know if anybody could get away with it in the post-Trump era. If, if, if Joe Biden said we've never got to the bottom of 9-11 or Kamala Harris said it, like, can you imagine what would happen to them, especially on that Newsmax channel that you like to watch so much? But Trump, it's like it kind of is like it creates some ripples, a little bit of social media traffic. And we'll have forgotten that in 72 hours at the most, right? Of course. And I think that it's part of actually that the Republicans have now created a diff- entirely different media ecosystem. And this really is a, a very different element from what was happening in the pre-Trump era. And even the most conservative Republicans still had to kind of work within the mainstream media ecosystem. And now they don't. They have their own sports. Like It's not just even news, right? Like they've got Clay Travis and these other sports losers who will go there and like run cover for them on doing the Saudi thing. So no, I, I like the gaffe politics on this on the right is, is very different than on the left. Uh, you're, the way to gaff now on the right is to offend the great one, Donald Trump. Like that is that is the way that you can get in trouble because you get in trouble with the with the MAGA media. Right. So now I don't think um, I don't think it matters. I, the other, there, there is one like reassuring thing, though, about this quote, if, I, if you guys don't mind. I just like to Please. try to be optimistic. Oh, a bit. yes. We really have no secrets as a country. You know, like there was a period of time where I thought that we must have deep secrets about the aliens or John F. Kennedy or any of your past conspiracies. It's very clear we do not have them because like Donald Trump would have released any possible secret that he would have known. And it seems like he was uninterested in even learning about what happened to 9-11. I mean, like, that's the, the thing about this. Like this person that is like, we never got to the bottom of the 9-11 had the top security clearance in the world. Any of the uh, information that he would have wanted to uncover about 9-11, he could have uncovered, but instead he just wanted to watch Pete Hegseth on Fox and Friends and like send messages to him about like what tie he was wearing. So I, I don't know if that's uplifting a fact to know or just a, a relevant piece of information from the quote. Do you feel uplifted right now, Lebo? No, because Pete Hexeth is ahead of both Tim and I on the Amazon list. Oh, so I'm and that now, listen. And that now, yep. So I guess now that we're talking about, you know, your various places on the bestseller list, it's a good time for us to commence our conversation about these two books. And Mark, your book called Thank You for Your Servitude reminds me of that book called Thank You for Not Smoking. Is that what it was called? Sure. No, Thank You for Smoking. This was, that, that, that's what inspired it. Chris Buckley's Chris book Buckley. turned yeah. into a, of a really fine film with Aaron Eckhart. Absolutely. Will this yeah. book be made into a major motion picture? Uh, I don't know. Are we still Maybe, waiting for I mean, the, Are we still waiting for the major motion picture of this town? Yeah. You know what's going to happen, though, between now and when that never happens? Yeah. I will go to Hollywood maybe once or twice, and everyone will tell me how great it is yeah. and how much potential it is, how excited they are to work with me and how they know someone who made the Game Change movie. Oh, it'll be, I'm going to have so much smoke blown, you know where. It's going to be just amazing. Could I come as like your little assistant on that trip? Because I you just must. love getting down well, first to of all, LA. And yes, I, I love LA we, too. You know, Tim, you, first of all, you I actually think Tim's book is more adaptable. 
Tim's book it is, is more because adaptable. it's a memoir. It's yeah. a, you know he's the central character. My yep. book doesn't really have a central character. I mean, I think Tim's is a journey. I, I would... James Franco. Would you would you keep casting James Franco as me, John, or do you have a better? Uh, do you have someone? I think James Fra- James Franco, who who's uh, who I, I said James Franco in Me Too, doesn't he? Like you can't talk about James yes, Franco. I think he is. Well, the the movie is about all of my mistaken yeah. goings, you know. But you know, yeah. so couldn't a canceled actor play a uncanceled? main character i'm not sure franco's willing to wear the pearls that might be the one thing that holds it all back tim's book why we did it a travelogue from the republican road to hell now before we talk about these two books their similarities and all of the things that they reveal uh we have to set the bar by stepping back to the pre-trump era the era that mark we were just talking about what we'll call the this town era and i want to play one little piece of sound mark when this town came out the literary sensation sold nine bajillion books. I still think there's a movie in it, even though the people in Hollywood are too myopic to see that. But this is a prelapsarian era, almost 10 years ago, back in July, 2013. And Mark goes on Morning Joe to promote the book. And I have to say, if you look at the video, you are a lot, you were a lot more composed and unflappable on television now than you are then. Because if you take a listen to this, you'll see just how flapped, how flappable and how flapped you were. Take a listen oh, to this. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, we're ready. You start with the uh, garish carnival of preening, posing, and predatory networking at Tim Russert's funeral. I was sitting at the memorial service at the Kennedy Center for this beloved newsman, and all of a sudden I'm sort of looking around and business cards are flying and people are trying to get booked on shows, and uh, just sort of watching an event like this degenerate into a cocktail party uh, without the cocktails was, was pretty striking. You quote Mika saying, quote, a new low even for Washington tackiness. And Mark, that's oh. where you talk. Oh, Washington <laughs> tackiness. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I was, sorry. Um, I, I just actually writer. like having Washington. He's a writer, okay? I, I like having my face on screen when the words Washington tackiness are, are, are expressed just to, for people to savor it. Washington tackiness personified, uh, or at least mm-hmm. the, the ultimate skewer of it. I thought that was, it was great. Uh, Mark, this, as, is where you, this is where you speak. As told through Mika. Yes. No, it was, it was, a, it was a good moment. No, I, here's the thing. It's, I actually think there is a great podcast potential for just people playing their old clips on Morning Joe from like 10 years ago and watch them react. Yes, that's a very good idea. Great it's actually, podcast. Tim Tim will actually make a Snapchat show about that because that's like, that's that's Tim's preferred platform these days. He's, mm-hmm. he speaks, that's where he speaks to the youth, to the youth, to the youngs. Uh, he has a lot more currency. Not with my we, party on Snapchat if we're going to be pimping things. Yeah, oh, you can p- find p- it. P- if you have a teen in your life, uh, you, you could point him that way. Pimp away, yeah. bro. I mean, I, so actually, in all seriousness, though, I do think that, like, that was, like, what I was even talking about. In that well, that's what I wanted to talk friend. about, the substance Not of it. Not very, I mean, it's a comedy of manners. It was yes. like, you know, it was like, okay, yeah, look, a, a funeral and people are throwing business cares. I mean, who cares? Yes. These are much higher stakes. This is the so thing. that's the point. That's the thing I wanted to ask you is just to frame it this way. And I said prelapsarian in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, your book was seen as like a scorching, searing indictment of the self-celebration of Washington and the narcissism sure. of the culture and all the cocktail parties and all the assholic behavior on the part of, of everybody. It was not a partisan book at all. It was really a comedy of manners, as you said. But sure. it was it was po- it was was acid. It was an acid, a portrait sketched in acid. That's how it was yeah. seen. People, sure. Some people were felt very hurt by it. Other people felt hurt by yeah. it, but then also celebrated by it. Um, sure. There were a lot, some, some rooms that you were not ever invited back into again. True. And you look at it now, true. and the way you were talking about it, it's like, Again, I'm not demeaning the book at all. I'm just saying, like, no. just how much things changed is that that kind of thing would now be seen as like in in the age of Trump. It's like you're kidding. It's nothing. 
Yeah, I would look like a total fool, and anyone would look like a total fool to try to make that into a major threat to the Republic, right? I mean, it's just like the stakes just make the moment. And these are, you know, these are important stakes. I mean, there, there was like the really, you know, you go into a book, it's like, all right, what's the book going to be? And like, ah, just write like a This Town for the Trump era, which is, you know, it's a cute little subhead. But that doesn't work because there's like people clubbing people to death with like flagpoles at the Capitol. I mean, this is really, really, really scary stuff. So, right. I don't know. I mean, well, and, and, offer and, a contrary and, and, view. And in fact, yeah. let me let me say one thing, Tim, just set, to set you yeah. up. I mean, I think that, that you know, I guess it's like in, in Marxism or something where like when the stakes are low, the small things seem bigger than they are. And And I just think about like in that era, the Obama era, right? Your book came out right after the 2012 election. Like the notion that democracy was imperiled in any way, even for people who claimed that Obama was from Africa and was a communist, right. like no one really, to, to use a phrase from from your new book, everyone was in on the joke that like no one really thought this, that those were the stakes. No one really thought Barack Obama was going to destroy American democracy. And so the narcissism of small differences made for a great book. And now all of that stuff seems like it just pales in comparison because, you know, the actual stakes of and how fragile everything is got revealed over the course of what we've all lived through over the course of the last six years. Now, Tim, if you want to disagree with that, please do. Well, I certainly don't want to disagree with the fact that the stakes were much lower. But I think that to say that the critique that Mark leveled in the book was not relevant to what is happening now, I think is totally wrong. Right. right? Like, and I'm not saying that you said that, but I, yeah. I like, so yeah. that is, that yes. was where I would be different from kind of what you guys are saying, which is going down a little bit of a different path. I don't think that like this town made Trump, right? And, you know, no. et cetera. There are a million, million fathers of Donald Trump, unfortunately. But like one of the w- real ones was this notion that like Washington was decadent and unresponsive right. to what was happening in parts of the country. And I think both the Bernie and Trump movements, obviously Bernie being less nefarious than Trump, but like both of these kind of populist movements rose out of that. Right. And and I think that in retrospect, so I so from my book from that time, you're writing about this town in why we did it. I write about 2013. I'm going to all these parties, Mark Skewering. Yeah. He didn't write about me, which I was annoyed about at the time, which in retrospect, like, thank you know, shows how fucking decadent I was. But um, <laughs> but we're we're doing the um, we're, we're doing the autopsy. Right. You know, and so I write about the autopsy and I read this the, the at Republican the Republican autopsy. National yeah. at the Republican National Committee after the the 2012 shellacking that that Obama gave Romney and where the Republicans got like no votes from anybody who was either young or brown. Yeah, exactly. And so we, I think, with good intentions, were like, how do we get votes from people who are young or brown or suburban women? Okay, but there's one thing that we didn't do, which was like, listen to the people that were mad and say, like, how can we actually be more responsive to people that are mad in a way that isn't through racism? Right. And conspiracies. Right. right. And, and so maybe this was not possible, by the way. We will never know. It's a counterfactual. But I, I think that like a different, more responsive Washington that wasn't so separated from their legitimate grievances about the wars, about, you know, what's happening in their communities, that kind of Republican Party might conceivably have been more responsive to to those grievances. And maybe if their grievances were being addressed or alleviated, at least they wouldn't have felt like they need to go to the carnival barking asshole to give the country a big middle finger. I don't know. Maybe not. Like maybe Trump was inevitable. Like this is a global thing. But I, I think that there certainly is in the this town culture, you know, one of the many explanations for like how we got here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now having read the new book, having read Thank You for Your Servitude, I think of like is that that all of this town is kind of like a prologue to Thank You for Your Servitude. In a way. Right. It's like there's a totally. it's a it's a tone poem for the era that ushers in this this new era. Right. 
at some point, I remember Christopher Hitchens, I think, used to say that Britain in the 1970s was like Weimar without the nightclubs. And it always makes me think of the decadence and the and the superficiality and what seemed to be low stakes give rise to to, I hate using Hitler analogies, but give rise to to that. And in his case, it would give rise to Thatcher, a big thing, a big, a real, where yeah. the stakes were obviously very high. And there's a way in which that feels true. The second term of Obama feels like the perfect scene setter in a way, where everything feels small and trivial. And then all of a sudden, here comes this big thing that like makes very clear to everybody that they're, that real important shit is at stake. Yeah. Absolutely. What this town hath wrought, I think, could yes, have been the title. Exactly. I think if we could books. somehow if we could somehow blame Lebo for what happened, that would be the best. Okay, oh, so yeah. so here's what we have these two books. The same story from, from different sides of the looking glass. Here's what Tim says why we did it at the beginning of the book. He says this is what it's about. He says, Why we did it is a book about the people who submitted to every whim of a comically unfit and detestable man who crapped all over them and took over the party they had given life to. It's about the army of consultants, politicians, and media figures who stood back and stood by as everything they ever fought for was degraded and devalued. The people who privately admitted they recognized all the risks but still climbed aboard for a ride on the SS Trump hell ship that they knew would most assuredly sink. Okay, so that's Tim's book, right? And the book is kind of split in two, which is how we can kind of connect this conversation. It's like the rise of Trump and why we didn't see it coming and why we didn't stop it, even if we tried some of us, a few of us. And then what happened once he got to Washington where we are now? Mark, your book is like you start with a scene at the Trump Hotel and you lay out what it was like there and why that was the center of like the Sodom and Gomorrah of, of Trump Washington in those four years. And you say, this book is about the view from the Trump Hotel. If not always physically, it's set against the unholy backdrop and sensibility that the owner fostered again during his Washington residency. And you say the idea is to tell the story of this ordeal through the supplicant fanboys who permitted Donald Trump's depravity to be inflicted on the rest of us. I wanted to catalog their descents into servitude as they made their deals and swallowed their pride, such as it was. I wanted to debrief them as they learned to survive, get what they could out of the deal, and with any luck, keep their jobs as well as their gold card statuses at the owners of various casinos, including his flagship Paola Palace at 1100 Pennsylvania Avenue, which of course is the address of what used to be the Trump Hotel. You read those two things, you're like, hey, I'm on two different vessels on the same trajectory, on the same itinerary here, right? So I just want you to, I, you're both, are your friends, you guys work together uh, in, in, from on both sides of the aisle now, Tim, you're more on our side of the aisle. I'm curious as you guys, when you guys were writing these books, did you, were you at all talking about what you were doing? Were you aware of the way that each of you was going about this book and you realized there was a parallelism that would emerge or no? Well, I'll start here. I mean, I think, first of all, I didn't. I barely knew Tim. I mean, I think we had a couple of backs and forth over the years, but I, I don't think I ever did any stories on any of his clients that I can remember. And I didn't fully know what he was working on. I mean, I, I knew I had like-mindedness with him just from reading him and listening to him starting yeah. in, in around 2016. But it wasn't until I read the book that I, I knew that, that we were covering a lot of the same ground. And I said this you know, before Tim and I did a little dog and pony show in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, but I actually, I mean, I meant it then, I mean, it, I mean it now, which is, it was too, there was so much just fresh ground for us to both inhabit. I mean, I think we, we were going after a lot of the same people or a lot of the same sort of tendencies. And I don't think you can ever like expose Ari Fleischer and Sean Spicer <laughs> enough in these contexts, right? Not that, you know, they're interesting and people need to read so much about them. But first of all, his book was just so good and is just so good that I was so honored to sort of be saying the same thing. And it was actually reassuring in some ways because, you know, Tim actually lived it much more directly and tactilely than than I did from sort of the uh, the nose pressed against the glass perspective of, of a reporter. So, no, I, I wasn't really aware till the end and until I read his book, but- um, Is that you know, exactly true? 
That's okay. not exactly true. It's close to true. Mark right. is being, I think, kind or forgetful, or maybe yeah. both. Yeah, but, but I um, thought I would bet on forget. I, I would get forgetful. I, I, Lebo's I did, well known to be uh, addled. I did halfway, about halfway through the book, I was in a personal panic and I was like, I think that I've only written half of a book and I don't know what else to do. And I asked Lebo if he'd go have a drink with me when I was in town and he gave me a lot of sage wisdom and advice. So I don't, I guess I didn't tell him exactly what I was doing during that time, but, um, but he was, that was, he, late. He was super helpful. That, what? That, well, no, that was yeah. late in the game though. I mean, I yeah. sort of suspected that we would be, you know, a lot of the same time frame. And yeah. by the way, I, I mean, a lot of it's just sort of by the book. When you're writing a book, there's going to be at least one, probably sure. three or four yeah. moments in the middle where you are just like, where you are a big author in trouble. I mean, <laughs> yeah. a lot of bad shit can go If you can get through it with only three moments like that, three as opposed, as opposed to being a bit author of trouble throughout the entire thing, which is my experience. <laughs> okay. Well, from, I had yeah. one, one bad one, and Lebo happened to be there when I was there. But I was like, I've written f five magazine articles, actually. There's not a book in here, but Mark helped me uh, quite a bit. Well, happy to help. Though. We're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with more Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. So Trump runs 2015. He gets in the race. Uh, a lot of people did not take him seriously at the outset. I will say that one of the funniest things in my experience covering this was that I I, I fall in the category of someone who thought that Trump could win the nomination but would never win the general election. But I, I thought early that he could win the nomination. And I took him very seriously at the very beginning. And I remember being on television that day when he announced after having been at Trump Tower when he came down the escalator and saying, you know, the Republican Party, people don't realize how much the party is now a party of racism, xenophobia, white nationalism, a white grievance. So there's a big market for this. He could do well. And he tweeted, Ache Heil is really starting to understand me. <laughs> and then I saw him the next day at Trump Tower for an interview. And he was like, I was, I figured this out. I was like, at that moment in his binary lizard brain, it was like there were only two kinds of people, people who thought he was a joke and people who thought he could win. And it didn't matter why you thought he could win. It could have been like the whole party's made up of Ku Klux Klan members. He would have been, you're on my team because you think I could yeah. win as opposed to people who were just writing him off. But then everybody's kind of holding their breath for like, okay, the first debate's going to come. What's going to happen? Trump's going to get up on stage. What's going to go on? Most of your colleagues, Tim, were like, this guy will never be the nominee as soon as we get him in front of a forget about the apprentice and all that shit. When he gets it on a debate stage with these professional politicians, he's going to get creamed. And there's a huge controversy at the first debate over this sound. Very familiar. Lebo, you write about this in your book. You mentioned, it, I think, Tim. So let's play this little, the, the exchange with Megyn Kelly at the first debate in 2015 in Cleveland. Here we go. Mr. Trump, one of the things people love about you is you speak your mind and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only is Rosie several... O'Donnell. What I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. She starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions. And, you know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. So I ask you, I mean, Mark says in his book, he says basically 
I think if I'm right, if I remember correctly, it may have been the McCain thing had come before that debate. So there had been, that was the first moment when people said Trump's doomed. And this was Mm -hmm. then the second moment. A lot of people in the social media ecosystem, journalism, establishment politics were like, he'll never recover from what he just did to Megyn Kelly. And he kept going on about it. That last part of that clip, obviously was on CNN a few days later when he went back in and started attacking her and her menstrual cycle. Tim, you're sitting in the Bush campaign, Jeb Bush, that is. Yeah. And, and what are you guys thinking in real time at that moment? Did you think <laughs> Trump is fucked? You know, our guy still is the kind of inevitable front runner who's going to be the inevitable nominee. Or did you look at him and go, well, there's something going on here that's like that we don't know how to deal with? Yeah, no, we were pretty worried by then. I thought he was a joke at the beginning. So I was not in the Heilman camp uh, at first. And I, I thought you were like my story. I thought the story you were going to say is that not Donald Trump called you, but Tim called you and yelled at you and called you an asshole for taking Trump seriously, because I did that to a lot of. Oh, I think you uh, did. I think you did. I just think it happened so often that I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Like yeah, right, like almost yeah, every exactly. day. Yeah, uh, I, I've, I've had multiple reporters and, and anchors send me like my emails to them from that first <laughs> June where I'm like making fun of them for taking this guy seriously and calling them assholes and being like, yeah, I, I think well, we turned out to be right to take him seriously so but but by then because that was that debate was after he started attacking jeb over columba and that's really when we right when we changed our our tactic to be like man this guy is this is something we have to deal with because i remember i started taking him seriously first when he landed at the iowa state fair gets off that plane does a press conference and he's like jeb likes illegals because his wife's a mexican or you know i don't remember the exact quote but but i was like oh my god we're gonna have to actually deal with this guy like we can't just ignore him this is not a herman Kane situation where he's going to rise and fall. And so, you know, I don't think that first debate Jeb criticized him and Jeb was never particularly skilled at criticizing him. And Jeb would say that this is not a criticism of Jeb who I love, but we knew he'd have to go at him. And while all these other guys ducked him starting then, uh, the, the thing just really quick from the book now re-listening to all that. Yeah. And the rosy moment. Yeah. One of the revealing things from the book is so I went and re- interviewed all my colleagues during that. And I was like, what were you know, the ones who stuck around? Like, what were you seeing yep. that I didn't see in yep. this guy? Because yep. like I still was watching that and being like, fuck this asshole. Like this is this is sick. I was just surprised by how many of my colleagues ended up kind of finding him funny. Right. Like they didn't like him. They didn't like him, but they thought that like one of the things that they could cling on to was this guy's given it to the people who've been giving it to us all these years. These know-it-all media elites and like he's tearing them down a peg. Yep. And Megan Kelly isn't that example, but Rosie is. And yeah, there's plenty sure. of other examples, sure. right? And I was kind of surprised after I got a couple drinks and my old friends trying to be like, what do you see in this guy? A number of them came back to that. So and that the, was like their first moment where they connected with him. It, that was not our experience in the Jeb campaign since we were on the receiving end, but, I, but some others in Republican world, that was the it's, case. It's funny, Mark, when we were covering this race, I remember for me at least, we did at Bloomberg Politics, we did some, some focus groups in New Hampshire very early that got a lot of coverage because people didn't take Trump seriously then. And I remember you know sitting in a room Tim, you may remember this because we were most surprised by the fact that we had these Republican undecided group in in New Hampshire, and there was no one in the room who was for Jeb. No one. Everybody had a reason why Jeb was not palatable. Too conservative, not conservative enough, dynastic, too much like his brother, not enough like his brother, whatever. None of them were. No one was interested in Jeb. No one. And all of them were interested in Trump. And no matter how much negative Trump information you gave them, you know, he wanted national health care. He wanted to live. He was pro-choice. He gave money to the Clintons. They'd always find an excuse for why they would still consider voting for him. And you're like, you know what happens in politics when that happens in a room? People go, the, these people are reflexively defending this guy. Why is that? That's a, you know, this thing you can't buy. You can't learn it. You can't steal it. Right. And a lot of it came down to that thing of, I don't like what he says about women. I don't like what he says about Hispanics. But you know what? Everybody else tells me what they think I want to hear. 
and he's saying something that's real on his mind and you get punished for that in America now. And I like that he says it and he just is like brazen about it and he doesn't give a shit what the woke police think. That's what a lot of those people said. And it was like, whoa, huh, interesting. As you cover this, you write about it, some in the book about it to crystallize this. Like what was your evolution of your thinking about Trump's power and as he, you know, kind of gathered strength in towards getting the nomination, how did your thinking evolve in real time about that, where that power, what that power derived from and how far he could go? I, you know, I think it was, I think the, the joke thing sort of dissipated pretty quickly. I mean, I think that the poll numbers really spoke for themselves. I mean, the guy was untouchable and, and look, he also, he survived a lot, like right off the bat. I mean, yeah. the Mexican rapist thing, the McCain thing, the Megyn Kelly thing. I mean, it was like, he, he had this, I, you know, I hate this word, but this invincibility factor around him that was, you know, it was hard for anyone to know what to make of. I mean, politicians are rule bound. They expect to be sort of punished for bad behavior. And, and he just kept right on going. And Tim, you, you made the point before about, right? So, you know, that when we were talking about Pence and the whole dynamic of all of you, all of these establishment candidates who are like, Trump will eventually fade and we want to be left on stage. So we're not going to attack him. We don't want to alienate his voters. And instead, they all just got mowed down. So that all happens. Jeb's out of the race really quickly. I remember once you're like, he's making real inroads. He's in New, uh, Iowa, New Hampshire. And the voters there are just really loving him. He came in, I think, sixth and fourth in those two states. I was I was the PR. I know. The, I know you were. Public I, I'm, relations I'm, I'm specialist like, for Jeb. Yes. You know, no, it's I'm, not I'm really listening, in my man. interest to be like, you're right, Heilman. We're getting our ass kicked out here. He's schlonging us every day. We've got no hope. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a good spokesperson. <laughs> no, in the face of schlonging, that I suppose was the only thing that you could do, Tim Miller. But we have something that we could do that's different than reacting the way that you reacted, Tim. We can call an end to this portion of the podcast. Part one of this special two-part episode with Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller on Hell and High Water is now concluded, which means that if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, and man, you definitely want to hear the rest of it because we're going to go deep on these books and get into the future. We'll be talking about Tim's conversion from being a top Republican strategist to becoming a leading voice of the Never Trump movement, talking about both of your favorite topics in the world, Lindsey Graham and his desperate need to remain relevant and just how far he would be willing to go and how much of his soul he'd be willing to sell in that pursuit and the extent of Mike Pence's submissiveness to Donald Trump and what you all think about the prospect of a Trump v. DeSantis battle for the Republican nomination should that come to pass. That and a lot more deep on the books, deep on the culture of complicity, deep on the corruption, all of it in part two of this special Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, Two Grace Tastes That Taste Great Together episode with Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller. Come on back tomorrow. We'll see you then.